0: Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan-Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're excited to be speaking with Rob Toshima, Chief Growth Officer of Village Capital. Rob, it's great to have you with us today.
1: Thanks very much for having me, Esther. I'm excited to be here.
0: Please tell us about yourself, Rob. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what led you to Village Capital?
1: Oh, That's a big question. My origin story, I suppose I should start at the beginning. I grew up in a mixed race, dual nationality household in the U.S., which I think, although I never realized it at the time, That experience of having ambiguous and cross-national identity was really formative in defining my worldview, particularly in terms of how I thought about equality of opportunity, a sense that equality of opportunity should transcend race, should transcend borders, religion, and gender. But we know that in reality, things are very different, that talent and, and inspiration might be everywhere, but that opportunity is not. And that in turn, I think, has shaped a lot of what I've done in my professional life, So I studied political science and French at university and later international relations at graduate school. But my work is really anchored at the intersection of markets and positive impact. So I started off working on policy issues at the local and state level in the U.S. and California, first on urban redevelopment and gentrification policies in San Francisco, and then on broader regulatory and taxation issues at the state level. After that, I transitioned into the international space and began working with economic research consultancy that looked to help channel foreign investment into frontier and emerging markets. And that was an amazing experience. I spent about eight years living in countries all across the Middle East, Turkey, and Africa. And really, I thought that was genuinely one of the best ways of driving progress towards the UN Sustainable Development Goals, that working with these really deep-pocketed, well-resourced institutions like sovereign governments and multinational corporations was the best way of making progress towards uh, real change, towards bringing those markets and positive impact together. But eventually I began understanding that real change actually happens at the level of SMEs, at more of a kind of grassroots level, that when you look at things like GDP and household income and and employment, that a lot of that is driven in those markets by the informal economy, by small and medium businesses, by startups, by entrepreneurs, by people who hustle, whether it's an auntie on a, a street who's selling phone credits or whether it's a sharp Gen Z who has a great idea of how to help people save money. And so through that began working with some startups in Africa and through that got connected with Village Capital.
0: Great, thank you for that guide or quiet walk through your life history. So at Village Capital, you're the chief growth officer. What does that mean?
1: That is a very good question. (laughs) Yeah, a chief growth officer is a relatively newly defined role, one that you don't see in a whole lot of organizations, but one that operates at the intersection of innovation, of marketing, of research, of business development, And traditionally, when you look at companies in, let's say, Silicon Valley, where this role is a little more common, you'll find that a chief growth officer focuses on identifying and developing new pathways for a company to expand. So that might be tapping into new markets, it might be developing new products or features. Village Capital, however, is a not-for-profit, which makes my role as a chief growth officer slightly different. And so the work that my incredibly talented colleagues on the growth team do is really focused on, on helping expand and scale the impact of the work that we do. So that means helping identify new ways that we can support entrepreneurs and with new
0: partners. So please tell us about Village Capital because it has a very unique model, and I think our audience should know about it. Yeah,
1: happy to. That's a good question. We are a now 11-year-old not-for-profit intermediary. We just celebrated our decade anniversary last year. uh, And we're focused on providing both financial and non-financial assistance to underrepresented entrepreneurs who are solving real-world problems in economic opportunity and sustainability. Now, the way that we do that is by working with three major stakeholder groups. Uh, We work with entrepreneurs directly, We work with other ecosystem builders like accelerators and incubators. And we work with investors and funders. Uh, And we do all that by running capacity building programs and channeling funding to help scale impactful early stage innovation. And for us, the kind of crux of how we think about channeling that funding and, and running those capacity building programs is by thinking through new and different ways to do so. It's really about process innovation for us and reinventing the system of early stage financing to deploy capital in ways that are more equitable and inclusive. So that means uh, a lot of the work that we do is thinking through new decision making frameworks, for example, or new milestone evaluation frameworks that can really help change The way in which venture capital and startups intersect with one another and in turn, hopefully surface more impactful solutions from more entrepreneurs out there to help change our world for the better. And we've done that now, like I said, for about 10 years. We've worked with 1,100 companies around the world. We've invested in 110 companies through our affiliated fund. We've collaborated with 60 or 70 different other accelerators and entrepreneur support organizations all across um, five different continents and roughly 30 countries at this point.
0: That's fantastic, Rob. And the thing that I'd love for you to describe even in more detail is how Village Capital chooses which of the companies that it works with will receive uh, grant funding or investment funding.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So The process by which we actually deploy capital from our affiliated fund and by which we help channel investment from our partner funders and co-investors through our programs is a process called peer selection. And peer selection really is anchored in the idea that power within venture capital has led to a lot of blind spots from investors in terms of how they evaluate opportunities. And we see that play out in terms of where financing for startups is concentrated. We see it specifically concentrated in a few people, places, and problems. And the statistics out here are are fairly well known. Roughly three-quarters of venture capital in the US and roughly half of venture capital globally is concentrated in just a few cities and regions in the US, in Silicon Valley, in the New York area, in Boston which in turn doesn't leave a whole lot for entrepreneurs who have great ideas, who have scalable innovations in other markets. We also know that venture capital tends to gravitate towards uh, certain demographics as well. The vast majority of entrepreneurs who receive venture capital financing are white men. And that's the case globally again. So when you're taking a look at the entrepreneurs out there who have great ideas, they're not only white men. There's plenty of people who have great ideas who uh, don't fit that mold, and yet we see time and time again that that uh, imbalance in terms of funding. And even when taking a look at the sorts of problems and sectors that venture capital finances, uh, there's an imbalance there as well. When you see the list of companies who have reached unicorn status, for example, that one billion dollars worth of venture capital financing valuations. You take a look at that and about a fifth of them, maybe, if you're being generous, actually are solving issues that the vast majority of the world's population has to grapple with on a daily basis, whether that's affordable housing, financial resiliency, access to health care, access to food. And so all of that suggests that the way in which venture capital operates as a system is overlooking great opportunities and great entrepreneurs, So that's where Village Capital's peer selection process comes in. We believe that by working with the entrepreneurs who are actually tackling the problems themselves, who oftentimes have a lived experience of the problem that is that they're solving, and who bring a more diverse set of perspectives to the table, that they will actually be well placed to make good investment decisions on behalf of uh, funders and investors. And we've now deployed that process for about a decade with all of the investments coming from our affiliated fund going through that process and have found that it actually works. It helps to mitigate gender bias, for example, in terms of how investments are evaluated. So the traditional tendency of venture capital investors to overweight risk when they're considering opportunities with female founders, for example, is partially mitigated through this peer selection process. And at the same time, while we've seen good impact coming from this, we've also seen good returns. So, our portfolio has um, performed at market rate in terms of its comparison to peer funds of the same vintage. We've seen 15 or 16 positive exits now, and we've got a survival rate of about 88%. So, all of that suggests that by thinking differently about how we make decisions as a venture capital investor, that we can get outside of the blind spots that have traditionally stricken the sector and do so in a way that not only yields good impact, but also yields good returns.
0: That's so exciting, Rob, because this is a very relevant topic. We've had it, we've been discussing it on the podcast for the last several months, this idea that the existing allocation system for venture capital finance in the United States and globally is just riddled with bias towards women, towards minorities, that it's a pattern recognition business. So if something is new that people haven't seen before, they won't touch it because they haven't seen it before. So the fact that you are giving not only power and agency to your participants, but then the decision-making that they choose amongst themselves, who is the most worthy of kind of this investment finance, is quite radical. And I remember when I first heard about this model, I thought, well, surely everyone participating in the program will choose themselves to receive the money, but that's not at all your experience, that they really were able to settle between themselves on the best recipient.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the one of the interesting takeaways from having had the chance to see a lot of these programs involving peer selection go through the process, whether it's in Africa or India or Latin America or the US, has been the fact that really one of the biggest benefits is for the entrepreneurs themselves in terms of how they think about evaluating the investability and their investment readiness of their business. So there's a real peer learning component that goes along with this. The focus and the thinking of a peer selection decision-making process for venture capital, naturally, we would automatically think, okay, the most important thing here is just who gets the money. And that's absolutely important. But I think one of the most compelling components of it is really the fact that this process also helps entrepreneurs look through the lens of an investor, not only at the businesses of their peers, but at their own business as well one of the traditional challenges in early stage venture financing is having a mismatch in expectations between an entrepreneur who's raising around and an investor who's exploring opportunities. And there's almost two different languages there that the entrepreneurs and the investors are speaking And it can become really difficult for an entrepreneur to get a good sense of what specifically an investor is looking for and if they're potentially turning down that opportunity, why the investor is turning down that opportunity. And so peer selection is really helpful because it puts the entrepreneur in the shoes of an investor and allows them to look at these key milestones and key components of how an investor might approach and and evaluate and assess the opportunity of their business. And we help enable that by what we call the Abaca framework, which is essentially a, a matrix with 72 different milestones of investment readiness broken out across the different facets of a business. That might be team, it might be product development, it might be exit strategy, and kind of looking at where an investor would expect a business to be in terms of those different categories at different stages of investment. So if you're looking for an angel investment, for example, here are the general expectations of an investor around what your team should look like, who should be on your team, what skills they should have. If you're looking for a seed investment, And investors can be looking for a very different composition for your team and a very different set of attributes and traits and skills. And so using that framework to in turn assess how their peers in a cohort might stack up in terms of investment readiness and investability is helpful. But then entrepreneurs can also take that framework and apply it to themselves and and in turn, hopefully facilitate and make more transparent and more comprehensible the the conversations that they are having with investors in the future as they look to raise uh, additional rounds.
0: That's fantastic. It reminds me when I worked in theater that a lot of actors would go to auditions, they would give a great audition, they would leave, and then they wouldn't get the part. But nobody would ever be able to give them any feedback about why they didn't get it. So they'd go into the next audition, equally blind, maybe give a great audition and leave. So you're essentially giving your companies the chance to be on the other side of the table and say, oh, this is why I didn't get the part. I should fix that for the next time and I'm more likely to be successful.
1: Absolutely. It allows the entrepreneurs to focus in on one or two or three critical milestones that they can make progress towards to, in turn, hopefully bring in additional financing, whether from that investor or other investors. It provides that sort of clarity that you wouldn't otherwise get when you hear, oh, this looks like a really compelling opportunity, but you're a little too early for us from an investor. What does early mean? That means different things to different people. It doesn't necessarily provide that sort of right level of feedback. So if you can get granular and say, this looks like a compelling opportunity, but you're too early for us because you don't have the deep technical and industry expertise on your sales team right now to sell into this highly complicated sector, like healthcare, for example, then that provides that sort of specific feedback as, to, okay, this is what I need to to plan for if I need to go back to this investor and raise financing
0: from them. That's great. And we've heard from entrepreneurs that we work with that this type of really focused, technical, deep expertise feedback is as useful to them as financing. So, congratulations to Village Capital for doing that. I wanted to follow up on a comment you made earlier when you said your fund has had 15 or 16 exits. I wonder if you can tell us more about what sectors and what geographies those were in. One criticism we hear a lot from investors when we're trying to convince them about opportunities in emerging markets is that these markets are not deep. There's not enough investable pipeline. And even if you do find a company to invest in, you won't be able to sell it to anybody. There's no prospect of an exit, but you've had 15 exits in the last 10 years. So please tell us about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That refrain from investors is a common one and one certainly that I've heard not only while at Village Capital, but at my previous role of working in the FDI space in the Middle East and Africa. So often in my former role, I talk with far larger asset managers and asset allocators, large private equity funds, investment banks, and would chat with them about the opportunities and the dynamics of frontier and emerging markets and where capital is going and what the opportunities are there. And so often, the response was characterized by such a misperception of risk that it really was astonishing, But particularly when it came to Africa, for example. There was this constant refrain that I heard from investors that Africa was just too risky as a continent, as a collection of markets to, to invest in. And I think that was really driven by misconceptions around political risk, around currency risk, volatility, and around pipeline, too. And that was driven largely by just simply a lack of awareness. I remember one private equity manager who I spoke with at a conference in London a few years ago. This is just stuck in my mind because it was so egregious in terms of the willful ignorance. But I was describing some of the work that I had been doing earlier that year around FTI going into uh, a few markets in West Africa. And the fund manager essentially laughed at what I was describing because he said that everybody knows that the only opportunities in Africa are in famine and war. And it was just, it was one of those moments where you really get a sense and you really see clearly the extent to which bias and blind spots are built into how capital is deployed. That too often people like to talk about capital as being agnostic, as searching out the best opportunities, as being incredibly efficient. And that was just one example of how that's simply not the case because of human involvement. But I think one of the exciting things is when you take a look at those markets, that they certainly do offer massive opportunities and that if you're willing to spend the time to get to know the market, to really take a look at what's out there, to become familiar with how they operate and the changes that you need to make in your expectations, that there's a lot of potential for good returns there. So I think a lot of it comes down to investors being aware that certainly When looking at frontier and emerging markets, there's a need to spend time on the data collection and market analysis side of things because it's not going to be as easy necessarily as it would be in, let's say, the U.S. or the U.K., but that by doing so, the benefits are huge. And there's a lot of shortcuts these days to doing that. One of the traditional refrains from investors that I used to hear when looking at opportunities in places like Nigeria or Cote d'Ivoire was that it just takes takes so much time, it's so expensive for me as a manager or an analyst to go out there and to talk with people in the market to diligence opportunities. When I can do that for much cheaper and at a much faster pace in the Middle East or in Latin America, why would I do it there? These days, there's a lot of ways to collect that information to look at the market in a much more efficient way, and whether that's leveraging tools like uh, Abaca, for example, that we use now as an ecosystem mapping tool for early stage investment, whether that's working with other intermediaries, like companies like Asoko Insight, who do a lot of that primary source data collection, whether it's working with other intermediaries who have those networks and have that expertise in the sector, like Seguba in West Africa, there are so many resources out there that are really designed to help investors shortcut that and get clearer access to investable pipeline and and really diligence them effectively. And I think that the challenge there is just helping investors understand that those opportunities exist and, and that those resources are out there for them to tap into because at the moment we just haven't really seen that.
0: I do think it's amazing that otherwise well-educated and cosmopolitan citizens of the developed world sometimes feel very free to make ragingly incorrect generalizations about the developing world with absolutely no information. So someone who's never been to Africa can write off the entire continent based on, who knows, an old movie they saw when they were a kid and feel perfectly justified and not think there's anything wrong with that. But so we know that there are investors out there who are not only open-minded, but also looking for new uh, markets and new places to seek return. So for those investors, where are some of the opportunities in sectors that you see for small business or foreign direct investment across the emerging and frontier markets?
1: That's a big question. This sounds maybe like a little bit of a cop out, but I would say that there's opportunity everywhere and it really depends on what the focus is. There's an initiative called the Collaborative for Frontier Finance, which has been um, hugely helpful in supporting investors who are looking at new opportunities in new ways in frontier and emerging markets specifically and looking to play a catalytic role by Helping segment businesses and inform best practices around what types of financing make the most sense for what types of businesses. And they break down small businesses, for example, in those markets into four categories. Uh, livelihood sustaining, which is like a mom and pop shop, uh, dynamic businesses, which are more traditional, what they call bread and butter industries, maybe literally like a, a dairy, for example, in, in Senegal. Niche ventures, which are innovative approaches, innovative companies who are looking at a very specific and particular potentially narrow market. So an example there might be a company like Vega Coffee, who uh, sells smallholder coffee beans from Nicaragua direct to U.S. consumers. And then the fourth category is high growth ventures, and that's more of your traditional Silicon Valley model. The opportunities across those four categories in, in any market are pretty significant. The ones that I'm most familiar with are certainly the niche and high growth ventures. But I would say across the board, opportunities there for those investors who are looking to really generate impact and wealth creation from their investments are multiple. However, when you, again, when you take a look at the segments of an, any economy out there, whether it's the U.S. or whether it's Nigeria or Egypt or India, Again, you're seeing the bulk of new job creation, the bulk of household income, the bulk of GDP coming from those small businesses. And so if you're thinking about what are ways in which I can catalyze growth, catalyze progress towards development indicators in markets, then it's going to be in those small businesses in one of those four categories. I think equally importantly, there's a lot of opportunity in terms of how investors look at ways to, again, change the system. We've talked a lot now about the, the biases in the system and the blind spots and the imbalances in how capital is allocated. And there's a huge opportunity for changing how that functions. And one of the ways is by looking for sort of new and innovative solutions in a way that kind of gets beyond the traditional structures of sourcing pipeline or evaluating opportunities and assessing opportunities. So Again, creating space for these overlooked communities to develop and scale their own ideas, to empower people with lived experience, to make decisions about who gets investment, whether it's through a peer selection process or some other framework out there. But there's a lot of value and a lot of opportunity for investors to just think differently about how the system functions here.
0: And I think that's a great idea, the idea that these traditional models of asset allocation or value creation or value valuation itself, how we decide what has value and how much value it has, are based on a certain model that's rooted in Western practice. And that maybe for an area like Africa or Asia, maybe for a new type of capitalism that's more humanistic and less extractive, we need a different type of asset allocation system. That's a great thing for our audience to think about as they ponder these opportunities that we're discussing. We talked about impact investors. We know that there are many, and in often cases, many confusing different standards by which to assess impact. What can impact investors do to ensure that the investments that they are making are producing real and measurable impact?
1: I will say that's a very timely question that I honestly wish I had a better answer to in large part because right now at Village Capital, we're going through a little bit of a, a rethink in how we take a look at evaluating our own impact as an organization and the impact of our entrepreneurs. It's something that there's a lot of, frankly, like very smart people who have done a lot of great work on this. The global impact investing networks, frameworks around impact metrics and the Iris Plus system are, are great examples of this. But I think one of the things that we've been trying to wrestle with is how we as an impact investor and an impact investing intermediary can think not only about end beneficiary impact, but also about the system of investment as well. So I think, again, getting to this idea that to think differently about impact investing, we need to change the system for scale and for sustainability to overcome the biases and the power dynamics and the outdated infrastructure and the misaligned incentives, all of which kind of perpetuate these challenges time and time again. So for us, what we're trying to think through is how can some of the the system reinvention that we as an organization are working on and so many other great organizations are also tackling, how can we start to to measure change and impact there as well? And in turn, how can we ensure that is creating more space for more impact-minded investors to, to move into this sector and to deploy capital in a more additive way? It gets to the thought of really taking the lead on your own to invest in a company that supports 50,000 smallholder farmers is incredibly impactful and great. But imagine if you could change the system so 100 investors could in turn each support 50,000 smallholder farmers. So really what we're trying to think through is can you innovate the process of investing to produce real impact. And that's really where Village Capital is focusing. And frankly, where we'd love to have more partners on that journey of understanding like, A, how do we think about that process of innovation in investing? And B, how do we effectively think about measuring progress towards that, about ensuring that the the areas that we're exploring are actually bringing us closer to the goal of having a venture capital system that's more equitable and inclusive.
0: You can definitely count on UNCDF as a partner in that, Rav. I know we've talked in the past about all these great funds and accelerators and innovation programs that pilot great ideas but there's not a connected pipeline to take those small ideas, link all the actors in a way that they're not overlapping with each other's work or doing parallel work or targeting the same small group of foreign educated entrepreneurs in Africa who get all the money, but then the, the local ones don't get funded. How do we kind of align efforts? And then how do we take the best pilots and scale them? So as you say, then the impact can reach hundred million people instead of just hundred people.
1: Yeah, those are really good questions, and I think you've absolutely hit the, the nail on the head, Esther, in terms of some of the, the critical challenges facing the field of impact investing generally. For all of the work that this relatively nascent field has done over the past 10, 15, 20 years or so, since organizations like Root Capital, for example, started really catalyzing action in space, There's still a lot of fragmentation and there's still a lot of areas where the biases of kind of mainstream investing continue to perpetuate. We did some research a few years back with the Gates Foundation looking at the fintech sector in East Africa and saw that the bulk of venture capital and into early stage fintechs in that region went to companies with an expat founder. And, you know, that's really problematic. That doesn't necessarily mean that expat founders don't have great ideas, that they can't build scalable companies. Absolutely that they can. But I think it does suggest that there are dynamics at play that uh, imply that opportunities from local founders are being overlooked. And so to your point about how can we overcome that, I think there's a couple of tools that, again, have begun to emerge and that can be sort of leveraged to help change this. One is looking to improve data and transparency in this space. So whether that's frameworks like Abaca, whether that's companies like Asoko Insight, there's a lot of room to just bring that visibility and clarity around what we are, what opportunities people are looking at and how we're assessing those opportunities and sharing the learnings there as a field. There's also the opportunity to leverage tools like peer selection and looking at these different process innovations, there's the opportunity to push out new capital structures. We're seeing a lot of uh, activity happening from folks like Adobe Capital in Latin America around revenue based financing, for example. So really thinking differently about even what types of, of capital is being deployed into these companies to do so in a way that's more sustainable and that can create more exit opportunities. The second uh, component is really around working with local intermediaries. So again, whether it's an organization like Seguba in West Africa, or even in, in markets like the U.S. and organizations like Goody Nation in Atlanta, there are phenomenal outfits that are being run by incredibly talented people who have spent time with the entrepreneurs and so have a good sense of kind of the diligencing of those opportunities, who have the networks to corporate partners, to other investors, so that ventures can collaborate with corporate clients. They can tap into additional financing opportunities. All of that exists. And it's just a question of being able to be aware enough to talk to those resources and to link with those resources to, to get that information. But I do... I I will say, Esther, that I really think that your point about fragmentation in the space is just so spot on. I think collaboration is just an area that, in spite of all of the mission alignment across the sector of impact investing and how excited we all as impact investors get when it comes to talking about driving change, achieving SDGs, thinking differently about value, There's still a lot of folks who are very siloed. A lot of this work is happening in a very fragmented fashion. And I think that there is a lot of opportunity there to to really be more intentional about partnering with one another, about sharing what we're seeing with one another, about bringing people together to talk about new and different ways of changing power and reassessing decisions and deploying capital. And I think one of the most compelling ways that can happen is through more infrastructure building. So again, there's a lot of focus at the moment on end results of impact on those kind of end beneficiaries. But really, if we want to expand participation in the impact investing space, and we want to shift how asset managers think about evaluating opportunities, we really do need to reinvent the system. And that means We need to build an infrastructure of sourcing, of evaluating, of capacity building and accelerating that doesn't just replicate existing models from Silicon Valley or Wall Street, but creates new processes of decision-making, new definitions of risk, new structures of capital. So that, I think, when we talk about Really expanding the field of impact investing, when we think about what that means in terms of surfacing new opportunities in markets like Cote d'Ivoire or Rwanda or Myanmar, that's where the rubber really hits the road. It's with being more intentional about collaboration, and it's about spending the time to build the infrastructure, the pipes that kind of can make all of this come together and help all of this operate as a sort of one cohesive movement.
0: Great. Thanks, Rob. That uh, answered my question of what thing you would do to accelerate the field of impact investing. And I think this is a really fantastic suggestion, right? We do have to reinvent the system and we have to share more, right? We need people to be generous about their pipelines, their introductions, their connections. All of us are working with scarce resources to solve a big problem. So the more we can collaborate, the better and the closer we all get to solving it. So thanks so much, Rob, for being with us today. And thank you also to our audience for tuning into UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.